Hello everyone, welcome to the year of underrated Stephen King. I am your hostess with the mostest, Kim C, and I'm so thrilled to be with all of you guys for a double episode weekend, I know! Sometimes it's feast or famine here on the podcast, but this weekend is a feast because the latest Firestarter theatrical adaptation was given to all of us, and I could not wait another day, had to share my thoughts with you, watched it last night for the very first time, my notepad was was nearby. I have some thoughts, I have some observations, and I wanted to share with everybody who caught the new Firestarter over the weekend. So this extra special additional episode is going to contain what I enjoyed in this newest adaptation some really cool, maybe extended King Universe observations I spied, as well as some of the areas of the film that fell a little flat for me or the areas that didn't shine as bright. So that's going to be our breakdown. Please do not proceed if you haven't seen the latest Firestarter that was released this weekend. By all means, if you're okay with spoilers, not that there's a lot of spoilers, especially if you've read the novel. There's one or two minor slash major plot changes, but if you're okay with that, by all means, you are invited to stay at this party. Absolutely. However, if you want to watch it for yourself, let's hit pause, go watch it on Peacock, and then come back over here and hang out. Okay, so with this latest 2022 Firestarter, I will jump back to my episode that I made last year when I read Firestarter for the very first time. I loved it and especially adored what King was bringing to all of us with the character of Charlie McGee. I don't know if he knows this, but King, oh my gosh, he has created in Charlie the coolest dark goddess archetype ever. And I felt the film did a wonderful job of exacerbating my theory on that. So more on that in a little bit. We're going to stay on track. I'm going to try to stay as organized as possible, but here's what happens when I get really excited. I veer off the path and just go nuts. So we're going to do our very, very best to stay on the trail, but buckle up because who knows what's going to (laughs) happen with me behind the wheel. So, all right, guys, this newest film is about 90 minutes in length, which is really too short. More on that a little bit, but this is directed by Keith Thomas, who I am not familiar with. His resume is a little light. Uh, We have a pretty spectacular cast. Andy McGee is played by Zac Efron, who was, (laughs) his poster was on the college dorm room walls of many a friend of mine. Charlie is played by Ryan Kira Armstrong. I'm not familiar with her work, but very lovely casting choice. More on that in a little bit. We also have John Rainbird, one of the coolest Stephen King villains, very, very underrated, played by Michael Grayeyes. We have a little bit of a gender switch. Gloria Rubin is portraying Captain Hollister. Very cool. Those are our main players. But here's what I liked, guys. 
If you caught the latest Firestarter iteration just released this weekend, I hope you were as thrilled as I was as to how soaked in the 80s it was. I know that a lot of people are comparing it to Stranger Things, which is fine, but Stranger Things is from the Stephen King universe as well as all of the 80s adventure films that we love, Back to the Future, The Goonies, that's where Stranger Things got it from. So it's super duper 80s soaked. We have a a consistent and persistent sort of synth beat and in the back like a really awesome industrial synthesizer sound and I super love it. I love the 80s saturation that we have. Unfortunately, it doesn't take place in the 80s. I wish it did, but I always wish that. I'm always wishing that everything took place in the 80s because I'm such an 80s nut. Proudly born in 1986, so I'm a very happy, excited 80s baby at all times. Loved it. It is placed in modern day. We've got smartphones, the internet, all that good stuff. We will discuss later on whether or not that was a wise choice, but this is just the facts. But the first thing I noticed about Firestarter is how much I loved the throwback to the 1984 film, as well as just the 80s saturation. Always great. Number two, actor performances. I felt everyone did really well, as well as they could. One thing that's great about Firestarter the novel is this is a chase book. It starts immediately with Charlie and Andy on the run from the shop. They are just fleeing for their lives, they have no money, they're just trying to hide, and not that this movie starts off at the same pace, but I do love the performances. Zac Efron, great job. Sweet baby Ryan Kira. Yep, Ryan Kira. She did really well. I mean, it's not easy to scream <laughs> as, as well and as long and loud as you can. I also really enjoyed the performance of Captain Hollister, played by Gloria Rubin. And for those of you readers slash listeners out there who have read The Institute, oh my gosh, guys, when I was watching the performance of Captain Harris, I immediately thought of the character Mrs. Sigsby from The Institute. So we're going to take a little tiny sidetrack tangent on The Institute because I believe it was a Vanity Fair article that was recently released, I think King posted it on Twitter, that kind of declared that the only Firestarter sequel we're going to get is going to be from the Institute. And in terms of, it's not a sequel at all, but that's him continuing the sort of plotline of extra special children being exploited by the government, which is kind of where Charlie's journey was headed. So it makes me sad that Charlie herself probably will not get a follow-up novel. I can continue wishing and dreaming that will happen. And then the task just might have to fall to all of us, guys. We just might have to do some crazy fan fiction or write our own spin-off series or something because Charlie's journey at the end of the novel stops at nine years of age. Come on, that's like the beginning of life. So 
But King said the Institute is probably the answer to the Firestarter gap. So if you haven't read Institute, please do so. It's a charmer. But Mrs. Sigsby is the main villain inside the Institute. She is shrewd, cold. I feel we don't get enough spotlight on her, but this character of Captain Harris, yes, I really, really, Hollister, not Harris, goodness, Gloria Rubin as Captain Hollister was pretty extraordinary. It definitely got me thinking of Mrs. Sigsby. Like, this is the kind of power boss lady who will kill you and who will not hesitate to kill a small child because she believes in the cause so much and she's just calculating, manipulative. She's that viper snake that <laughs> that we want in the villain role. So I was very pleased with casting. I really was. I enjoyed these performances that we got a glimpse of in this installment. But my favorite performance, guys, my favorite, favorite character, oh my goodness, is Michael Grey-Eye's performance of John Rainbird. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, guys. Finally, finally, we're cooking with gas. So George C. Scott in the original 1984, he did great because come on, it's George C. Scott. He's a legend, but he is, to my knowledge, not Native American. And so we actually have a Native American actor putting forth a very understated, cool, icy, mysterious, yet very layered performance. I really, really liked it. And they made some changes to the character of John Rainbird that we're going to talk about in a second that I, I'm, I think I'm okay with. I'm mulling it over. I think I'm okay with it. But John Rainbird was definitely my favorite performance. The look of him, the way his eyes fixate on something. I think they, uh, he, yeah, I really wanted much more time with John Rainbird because I felt as an actor choice, 10 out of 10. Really strong performance. Really liked it quite a bit. So now we're going to kind of open up the the changes to John Rainbird's character because my fourth sort of item that I really enjoyed is powers for everyone question mark so one of the interesting changes that was was made in this installment is that john rainbird has powers of his own they seem to be if i'm recalling the film correctly very similar to andy's which is the push or the telepathic ability where he can influence I don't think he had the same powers as Victoria with the telekinetic ability, but he does have powers and he was victim to the shop and then became a pawn of the shop or sort of like the muscle for the shop. And that's where we see him in this iteration. He is called upon by Captain Hollister to take out Charlie and her family, as we know from the novel, but he himself has powers. So I thought that was kind of interesting. The other thing that was interesting, and I'm putting it in the I like it category, but I'm eh. It may change as this episode progresses and as the film has a little bit more stew time in my brain. I am relatively neutral slash I guess I kind of like it. The other big change to the story is that Andy and Victoria are, of course, Charlie's parents. They 
in the novel meet when they're receiving the injection of lot six they are broke college students they wanted to make a quick 200 bucks they sign up for this laboratory test and they are injected with lot six a lot of the participants die because it is a mutant sort of cocktail of god knows what and Andy and Victoria walk away with telepathic and telekinetic abilities. They marry and give birth to Charlie, who has all of the powers, including pyrokinesis. So there's a little novel background for you. But what was very interesting about the film and what was kind of cool the way they did it is they show classic footage from the shop slash lot six participant interviews of Andy and Victoria claiming that they had these powers before the injection. That's wild, guys. So Andy's being interviewed. Andy said, I knew about the day my parents died a week before it happened. And then Victoria seems to be very secretive about her abilities, but I'm like, okay, that's different. They had powers before Lot 6, which is not how it goes down in the novel. So I'm okay with it. We see that a lot in, in King's work, of course. We've got Danny with the shine. We've got Carrie with her power. However, I haven't read Carrie, so I don't know if that's before or after the bullying and the pig's blood. It might be after. But I have a feeling it could have been before. Don't quote me on that. I'm sorry. I haven't read Carrie yet, nor have I seen the movie. I know I'm a bad constant reader. So I guess I'm mulling it over. But for right now, we're putting it in the things I liked category. Powers for everyone. John Rainbird has powers. Andy and Victoria have powers before Lot 6. All the stuff. Number five is an homage to the 1984 film. One of the best parts of that I think it's Dino De Laurentiis who directed it, is sweet baby Drew Barrymore and her hair blowing back, right? They just put a big fan on her and you know the fire's coming because her hair is blowing and she's so cute and it's so cute. So they have a little bit of that in this latest iteration. They they blow Charlie's hair back. It's not the crazy big fan that they used for the original movie, but it's just enough to make me happy. It's just enough to be an homage to the, the first film. So I really, really liked that part. I was very happy that there's some nostalgia there. So number six, the final point that made me absolutely swoon guys i loved this so much love in all caps the ending oh my goodness oh my goodness friends there is a twist it is not like the novel it is not like the 1984 film there were some very smart choices made and oh my goodness the ending fills my imagination with wonder and I'm going to tell you what it is right now because I just, I'm too happy. I'm too excited about it. We have to just pull the pin on this grenade, guys. So if you would like to pause now, please do so. And if you are going to stay with me, the ending to the latest iteration of Firestarter is as follows. So rather than, firstly, we're going to pull in John's character again. So Rainbird in this installment is a little different than who he is in the novel. In the novel, John Rainbird, of course, is an assassin. And when he observes Charlie, when he sees her ability, 
he is obsessed, right? He thinks she is the most powerful, amazing creature he's ever seen in his life, but he still wants to kill her. He kind of takes on the mentality that Charlie is like the white whale. She is the lion in the Serengeti, the untouchable force of nature. And he, John Rainbird, is going to bring her down. He is going to destroy her and be sort of a god killer because he is is a killer and that's where he gets his jollies. In the novel, John Rainbird is like, I'm going to take her down. And yes, she is amazing. She is fierce. And so there's a little bit of worship there. Like he is aware as to how incredibly ineffable Charlie is. Like she is beyond. She is the greatest, most powerful thing he's ever observed in his life. And he will be the one to take her down because what a prize. You know, she is the wild anomaly of nature and he's going to take her out. And what I love, love, love in this iteration is John Rainbird. They keep him extremely reverent of Charlie. Oh my God. This is the best part of the movie, guys. The ending was absolute fire, quite literally, for my heart. So instead of John Rainbird wanting to kill Charlie, when he observes her, he kind of has a little bit of a 180 and reconnects with the fact that perhaps he was exploited by the shop as well. To which degree, we do not know. When he observes Charlie, he kind of becomes full-on in awe and very penitent. And he kneels before Charlie in sacrifice. So there is a part at the end when all the action is going down at the shop, but the shop is now called like DVS or something like that. But she's at the shop headquarters, just like in the novel. Unfortunately, she was unable to save her father and she encounters John Rainbird, who she's seen before kill a couple people at the Manders farm. If we remember that part from the novel, when Charlie and Andy are trying to hide out for a few days and they meet the Manders hitchhiking and change their names to Frank and Roberta. It's pretty cute. So she's seen him before. She's seen him kill people and she is in full-on fire blast mode, absolutely igniting everything that she can get her mind's eye on. And John Rainbird kneels before her and she starts to cook him. He starts to breathe heavy. He's steaming. He, he like, it starts to go down. Like she's just going to blow this guy up. He will emulate. Is that the word? It might be wrong. Something. Emulation. <laughs> this guy is about to burst in a fireball, like a human torch. So she starts to cook him and she stops. And I loved that because firstly, he kneels before her. He kneels before the goddess because that is what Charlie is, guys. If you missed that part in Firestarter, well, here it is now. Stephen King has created the dark goddess archetype with Charlie McGee. So what I've noticed in King's work thus far is that he creates the female either antagonist or protagonist and puts them through hell. They are typically victims of physical abuse, sexual abuse, all kinds of terrible things. And 
evidently in a, in a lot of these stories, some of which I haven't even read yet, the woman puts herself back together via revenge. And in that vengeance, she kind of clothes herself with a new identity. And so some of the human sort of characters we have, such as the gal from Gerald's game, Jesse. Another example is the main protagonist inside Big Driver from Full Dark No Stars. She is raped and held captive and left for dead, and she is metaphorically killed. You know, she dies in a way. And same thing with, like, Jesse from Gerald's Game and all of these women, Rosie McClendon from Rose Matter. They encounter all of this violence and all of these things that should have killed them. They don't die but they do come back a little different. And I think with the superhuman characters we have, such as Charlie, Susanna Dean from The Dark Tower, we have the goddess, the dark goddess forming. And it is about vengeance, 1000%. So I could nerd out on this topic for hours and I will in the future, dear friends. I am planning to do an academic panel of some of the Stephen King character archetypes because I've got an arsenal of stuff to talk about, but back on track. So Charlie is the dark goddess, right? And John Rainbird sees her as such, which is why he bows before her. The other reason why he does this is because John Rainbird has the hangman tattoo. We're going to talk about that in greater detail in just a moment but he bows before Charlie. His head is down, his eyes are closed, and he's ready to face his judgment. He's ready for her to kill him. And Charlie's a little girl, right? At the end of the novel, she's nine years old. So she's probably about eight, uh, maybe nine in this telling. She starts to kill him and then she stops. So the very end of the story is, of course, Charlie is walking out of the shop. She's lighting everything on fire. Everything she's walking by just engulfs into flames and she's at the water's edge. Her father is dead. Her mother is dead. Everybody is dead at the shop. So rather than visit the Rolling Stone headquarters, which is how the 1980 book ends, she looks to her right and there is John Rainbird who grabs her hand and he picks her up and they walk away together. I love this guys. I love this because rather than be the assassin that John Rainbird was originally written as, he is going to become the caretaker and the keeper of the goddess. He will keep her safe. He will protect her because he knows she is a powerful, unearthly weapon that needs to be feared and respected and worshipped. So he completely identifies that Charlie is beyond this world special. She needs to be kept safe, taken care of, all the good things. And so John Rainbird walks away with Charlie in his arms and the viewer is left with, he's going to take care of her. He's the new caretaker. And I love this, guys. I loved it so much. Oh my gosh. I was so moved. I was like, he gets it. They got it. They got it so right with John Rainbird sort of flipping a switch and realizing I can't kill this person. She is 
beyond. Also, that I'm a victim of the shop too. I would never want to do that. They deserve everything that they're getting and more. I deserve death. I'll surrender to the goddess and see what she'll do with me. So she spared him. And yeah, in a way, for all of you Game of Thrones fans out there, he might become maybe not exactly as needy, but he might become the Jorah Mormont to the Daenerys Targaryen. We have the fire goddess queen, the mother of dragons, and we have this man who adores her and loves her and will do anything to protect her because he knows she is the goddess. He knows she's the rightful queen of King's Landing, XYZ, for all of my George R.R. Martin fans out there. But we have Charlie McGee, who is a fire goddess. She's a destroyer goddess, and we have them all over history. If you want to look up some fire goddesses, jump right over to Hawaii with the volcano goddess of Pele. So, oh my gosh. For those of you guys who haven't spent too long with the podcast, I got my minor in religious studies, and so it's something that I nerd out with quite a bit, especially dissecting the works of King. So I'm on a little bit of a tangent right now. We will reel it back in. We're going to recap the six things I super duper loved, and then we will proceed to those observations. Number one, I love that this was super duper 80s soaked. Number two, actor performances. Number three, the character of John Rainbird. Oh my goodness. Number four, powers for everyone. I, I, I'm still on the fence about this, but for right now, we'll say that I like it. <laughs> I, John Rainbird has powers. Aunt Andy and Victoria had powers before the Lotsex injection. This is how it's going. So powers for everyone. Number five, Charlie's blown back hair. <laughs> Very lovely homage to the original film. And number six, the ending. Oh, so good, guys. I love the twist. Smart writing choices. Excellent. Just fills my heart. Sets me ablaze, aflame. Yes, it does. All right, friends, let's take a little break and I will see you in the next section where we'll talk about some of those observations as well as the things that that weren't so hot that definitely cooled it down a little bit. I'll see you there. fireballs. I have a few observations I would like to bring to your attention and then we will segue into the areas of the film that weren't so hot. They definitely weren't my favorite. So firstly, I kind of mentioned this a little bit with John Rainbird, but there is a very cool shot where the viewer is kind of the camera is leading around John Rainbird's residence a little bit and we see some cool stuff. He's got some charcoal drawings, we have combat boots, so we're kind of getting those visual character elements and then we see John Rainbird's bare back and there is a huge tattoo of the hanged man from the tarot deck. It looked like the Rider Waite tarot deck, which is the more traditional, widely used tarot deck out there. So I wanted to remind everybody what the hanged man represents. This is a huge thing. Okay. It's the hanged man 
facing down. So <laughs> for all of the tarot nerd people out there, the position of the card gives it different meanings. So the hanged man is, of course, a major arcana card, and it shows a man suspended from a T-shaped cross made of living wood. He's hanging upside down, viewing the world from a completely different perspective, and his facial expression is calm and serene, suggesting that he is in this hanging position by his own choice. He has a halo around his head, symbolizing new insight, awareness, and enlightenment. His right foot is bound to the tree, but his left foot remains free, bent at the knee and tucked in behind his right leg. His arms are bent with hands held behind his back, forming an inverted triangle. The man is wearing red pants, representing human passion and the physical body, and a blue vest for knowledge. The hanged man is the card of ultimate surrender, of being suspended in time, and of martyrdom and sacrifice to the greater good. So if you get it upright at a tarot reading, it's supposed to signify a need to pause, surrender, let go, or a new perspective. So the upright position is the tattoo on Jane, John Rainbird's back. Then if you get it reversed, <laughs> just know it's indicative of a delay, resistance, stalling, indecision. So we have the upright hanged man. Here's what made me freak out, and here's what made me sort of nerd out with all of you guys in terms of of what that means and what this hangman tattoo represents. Not only do we have the self-sacrifice and the surrender at the end of the film with John Rainbird bowing before the fire goddess, bowing before Charlie and kneeling before her, accepting his death. He's accepting his punishment and sort of coming to terms with the fact that he deserves death and deserves death by the fire goddess as he is the killer of her mother. He killed Victoria. I believe in the novel she was just killed by the shop and so we don't know exactly who did it as her body's just kind of discovered in the house but in this iteration John Rainbird is the killer of Victoria so there's a lot of atonement there and he kneels before Charlie waiting for her to kill him so there's that here's the other thing that made me kind of just explode a little bit so as you guys know I'm very very new to the Dark Tower but one of the things that super stole my heart in terms of loving the Dark Tower specifically was the last book, book five of The Gunslinger, where Roland and the Man in Black have that sort of tarot card reading. So the hanged man, guys, is all over the Dark Tower. We learn of Roland as a youth in Gilead, where he and his, his buddy sort of observe, I believe it's the local cook or chef who is hanged, and there's kind of a very poignant scene where the two boys are just watching his kind of body sway to and fro in the wind, and it's just the hanged man, and that was with Roland as a youth. We have the this last sort of sentence here is kind of a, a kicker being suspended in time as the hanged man. So we also have a huge time jump at the end of the the gunslinger meetup with the man in black. I think it's 10 years go by. So bottom line, I freaked out because I feel I could be dead wrong about this, folks. So if I am, someone can kindly write me a note. But I feel the hanged man 
is a huge aspect of Dark Tower foreboding lore. If I'm remembering the tarot card reading correctly, we of course get mention of the drawing of the three. We get uh, the priestess. Of course, I'm forgetting all of our special tarot cards for the introductory quartet, but I, I don't remember if the hanged man is for Roland or I feel that the man in black always tells Roland it's death. He gets the death card, which never actually means physical death, but he also says death, but not for you gunslinger. So I'm just nerding out a little bit because Tarot is a large chunk of both the gunslinger novel as well as Drawing of the Three. It's a huge element to this unfolding lore within the Dark Tower universe of which I know very, very little. I am so, so fresh spring chicken when it comes to Dark Tower, guys. So I'm just sort of picking up these little breadcrumbs as I go and saying, is this a thing, everybody? I don't know. So please forgive my novice exploration if I'm getting that dead, dead wrong. But I think the hangman is a very foreboding, ominous sentiment in regards to Roland's journey and Roland's life. And of course, Roland Deshane is our star character. He is our hero of the Dark Tower. He is maybe one of the most, gosh, He's a star in the King universe, that's for darn sure. So I hold the hangman very close to the character of Roland. And so the fact that we see that with John Rainbird, I don't know if that's just a nod to the Dark Tower universe or if it has nothing to do with anything whatsoever and it's just haphazardly there because the hanged man is all about sacrifice, which is in the end what John Rainbird does. He sacrifices his life in atonement to Charlie, but he is spared. So, oh gosh, just the way, the fact that it all went down like that, guys, and she's such a little girl and spares him, like, I don't know, I was just, this is way bigger than she is and just way cooler and so all about it. So the hanged man tattoo on the back of John Rainbird was very, very cool. I liked it a lot. Potential Dark Tower connections unknown, but we'll see. So I will make sure I memorize the tarot reading in my brain when the man in black and Roland finally have a chit chat. So it's very important. I really need to write those down. I, of course I've written them down. They're somewhere. They're most likely in my copy of the gunslinger tucked into the first page because that's what I do with all of my show notes. So uh, it's there. It's just, you know, I have the memory of a goldfish when I'm recording. So John Rainbird tattoo. There you go. My second observation is calling all of those fans, myself included, of the girl who loved Tom Gordon. Oh my gosh, guys, that is a, I believe, 1999 novel that I absolutely adore. I know it is not one a lot of people like, especially a lot of gentlemen constant readers out there. Everybody reads it and you're either like myself, you are obsessed, you love every page, or there are those that it's just like a meh, it's nothing special, or there are those that just hate it and they find it pointless and a waste of time. So there's a scene, a segment of scenes in the forest where this is shortly after the Manders farm goes kaput, where instead of Charlie barbecuing the place, which I wish he would have done, we, we have a shootout 
Charlie escapes into the forest and she's there for a little bit trying to regroup, regather. So she's playing with her fire powers. She's boiling some little pond water there and she's trying to aim her fire and build a fire for herself. So she makes a little little gathering of sticks, a little heap, and she's trying to get it going. She's lighting everything else on fire but the little fire pile. But there was something looking at Charlie. She's in her little bedraggled hoodie. She's dirty. She is tired. And I'm like, oh my god, this girl, this actress, this should be Patricia from Tom Gordon. Like, let's stop the movie. Let's start the production of The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon. That's the movie I want, guys. And it's been dangled in front of me for a really long time that they're going to make a movie, they're going to make a movie, but they haven't. But right when she's in the forest, I'm like, give me Tom Gordon. Give it to me. Give me that movie, guys. I need it. I love that book so much. It is so criminally underrated. It is such a powerful story, especially for women. I don't mean to genderize it at all, but like, guys... Ladies, if you haven't read Tom Gordon, just do it, please. Like, it is a meditative book that really speaks to the heart of a woman. It really speaks to a female soul because you look at all the ways the world is against women. And this is me not going on a soapbox. I just mean legit the facts of reality that we live in a patriarchal system and there's everything against us. And now we've got this sweet young girl with nature against her and she fights back and it's just so empowering it's just wonderful it's deep it's so deep it's so much more than just a little girl lost in the woods it is oh it just ignites my soul especially when i'm feeling down it is about survival but i really feel king unknowingly made it for women i just i do he puts these female characters through hell he does And that's what you're supposed to do in fiction. You have to kill your darlings. You have to put them through hell to see what they're made of. You must do it. But King does that extra well with the female characters. And so we have that with Charlie. Charlie loses everything. And this is why we need more fan fiction for Charlie. We need more theatrical adaptations. And you guys, if we don't get something cooking in the next couple years, I'm just going to do it myself, okay? We're going to get together. We're going to form a writer's group. We're going to form a team. Let's get some screenplay developments or teleplay, I should say. Let's do a teleplay. We're going to have a 10 episode season. We're going to do it because Charlie is a goldmine. She is an absolute goldmine for a wonderful fictional tale with the fire goddess, with a dark goddess who's going to barbecue the planet unless she figures out who she is and is safe and protected. Like, come on, we have a goldmine of a story with Charlie McGee. So I could not help but connect my favorite, one of my favorite Stephen King novels, The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon. I got a tiny slice of it with sweet Charlie in the forest trying to hone her fire skills. She's just all alone. I was like, oh man, I need, I need this. I need a theatrical adaptation of The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon. I need it. So it definitely made me very excited to see Charlie in that moment. So hopefully you guys get the same when you watch it, especially my Tom Gordon fans out there. I know they're aren't a lot of us but a shout out to those who who like it all right everybody so to recap the things i my observation the hanged man tattoo 
slash Roland Deshane, question mark. And then, of course, Charlie in the Forest. I, I want her to be Patricia. So if this gal, if this Ryan Kira needs some work, she needs to be Patricia in The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon. All right, folks. This is what I wasn't so crazy about in the film. So this is the did not like portion. So first, I shall preface. I shall preface with the fact that if somebody asked me to watch the 2022 version of Firestarter again, I would respectfully decline. <laughs> okay, so let that color sort of how I ultimately feel about this adaptation. Here are the things that were a little problematic. So number one is pacing. We have too, too heavy a foot on the gas pedal, folks. Oh my goodness. Okay, this goes way too fast. Way, 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 way too fast. We also have too much setup. So one of the things I love, love, love about Firestarter the novel is that it starts right in the middle of the action. Charlie and Andy are on the run, and that's how the story begins. You, It hooks the reader in immediately because we're like, what is going on? Why are these people running? The energy of the novel did not translate to the beginning of the film. However, a part of me really liked that we kind of got to see the domestic life of Andy and Victoria. I was also happy to get some time on the screen with Victoria because she's just there for two seconds in the book. We barely have any scenes with Victoria. She is gone from the narrative pretty quickly. So I was happy we did get some time with them as a family unit. But the stuff with her at school, it was all right. It was just a little too long, especially when everything else, the, the rest of the movie got sped up dramatically. So I feel the pacing and the areas they chose to expand upon were probably a little disjointed. I think we needed more time in the secondary half and we could have curtailed and shortened the first part of the film for sure. A little too much setup, a little too long getting the action going. So the second area that needed a little bit of work, of course, is the uh, understanding the setting and location. So I believe somewhere in the film, it's mentioned that they're from Lewiston, Maine, and that they were trying to get to Boston. So we know they're in New England somewhere. But later on in the film, when everything's going down and Andy has been captured by the shop, Charlie is running she is pulled back to the shop headquarters trying to save her father it is john rainbird who kind of telepathically leads her there that is something we don't see as a viewer it is something that's told to us that we're just sort of supposed to digest so suspend your disbelief just kind of go with it so she comes back to the shop headquarters however she rides a kid's bike to get there and this place seems pretty rural and in the forest and Hmm, why is it in, I mean, the Institute's in Maine, so there's that, one of the Institute's from the Institute novel. The The worlds are a little blurred, but I, I was a little confused, like, how, how are we getting to these locations? 
how why is everything so compactly near each other <laughs> like i believe the shop was located in either north or south carolina and charlie and andy were in new england in the novel so i'm, I'm like what's what's going on here with setting and location how is she able to ride some kid's two-wheeler that she stole from him to the shop headquarters so i can suspend my disbelief but i was like okay a little questionable there so number three, we have a barbecued cat. It was terrible. There's a sweet little cat. He's a ginger and it scratches Charlie. She gets upset and just lights this thing up. And we hear it like meowing in pain. And I'm like, God damn it. Like I, <laughs> so I'm a passionate animal lover. I really am. I don't have human children. So fur children are as close as I'm going to get and all that I want. So what if we just decided to stop hurting animals in films? Like it's so overdone. It's just overdone. It's cliche. The animal always gets hurt. We have it all over, especially cats. I understand that not a lot of people like them, but come on. We would have, everybody would have been up in arms if it was a dog that got roasted. It was a cat and it was, she got a little scratch. She barbecued the thing. It was graphic. It was like, you know, not my favorite. If you're going to barbecue the cat, that's fine. I don't want to see it burning and dying. Thanks. So that's just me. That's just a personal issue I have. So if you are an animal lover out there, buckle up, brace yourself, avert your eyes because yeah, it's, it's in there. Just lots of animal abuse. We always have that in horror films. So don't know if that's sort of indicative that maybe Charlie's going to be a baby serial killer via fire with the abuse of animals, but she did it in quick reaction and she was pretty remorseful about it. So there was empathy there for sure. She won't be a serial killer, at least. I don't know. I don't know right now, but there's some, some animal, uh, a flame not my favorite so that's just a personal issue i just wish that horror directors how about we just don't how about we just don't do that to animals anymore because it's very cliche and overdone we always know that the animal's gonna get just maimed and ripped apart or destroyed in some horrific way and it's just overdone it's cliche so how about you get smarter and get better <laughs> and get savvier with your storytelling and not waste time killing animals in that way because it's just overdone it's overdone cliche come on let's get through it so tiny little soapbox watch out animal lovers okay number four why does charlie not have side effects so this is just a question I'm throwing out there. I wouldn't say it was something I disliked, but I, I remember that the, the lot six injection, we know that Andy suffers a great deal of pain and, and physical side effects when he pushes. When he uses the push to influence somebody, he gets really sick. And in this movie, his eyes bleed. It's pretty cool. Uh, and whereas in the old movie, Andy, his, he'll just get like a rapid nosebleed. So he gets some physical symptoms. They're pretty dramatic. I believe Victoria, we don't get a lot of time with her, but she just avoids her gift altogether. And there's no demonstration of, of side effects or, or that it was difficult or that there was a lot of exertion involved in that. She, I, I can't really speak on Victoria. 
So we have very little evidence that Charlie is fatigued by the fire gift that she, that it drains her in any way. So it's kind of an interesting concept. It could be because of youth. She's just so young with just like an endless amount of energy. But we have one or two times when she's just melting everything, like everything's on fire and she does kind of collapse a little bit. So that's sort of slightly a hint that maybe she is getting tired out from all the fire, but that's a lot of brain power. And she also has both of her parents' gifts in addition to pyrokinesis. She's got telepathy, telekinesis, pyrokinesis, which maybe the two of them are sandwiched together, the pyro and the telekinesis, perhaps. But uh, she she's so she's okay like she's just unfazed she doesn't get winded she doesn't need a break she doesn't need a nap like she's just a endless source of of power which is very cool so I was kind of wondering about that like okay this this gal there's no side effects for her so maybe it has to do with aging I don't know but I don't know like stuff with the brain that I mean, mental strain for normal mortals fatigues us, so might we might need some continuity stuff of, to plug in with, with this film. So lastly, the point that I just wanted to share with all of you guys, more fire! We needed way more fire, guys. Uh, the ending is climactic. It's pretty cool. I was happy with what they were able to accomplish, but no, more fire. 10 times more fire. I needed all the fire, all of it. That was something that the 1984 film did really, really well. They went so over the top. It was bombastic. It was crazy. Little Drew Barrymore is blowing up helicopters. She is shooting fireballs into mansions. She is just, everybody's on fire. We've got fire bodies running all over the place. It was epic and amazing. We do not have that in this latest installation, guys. So I don't know if it's just budget or studio or actor safety or post-COVID, COVID, whatever. We needed way more fire, <laughs> way more. I needed to see everything barbecued, absolutely everything. So I was very hungry for more. I was jonesing for more fire everywhere. I wanted it to top the 1984 film. I don't feel it did that at all. I really don't. I just needed more, more fire. Those are sort of the, <laughs> those are the biggest problems I had. There's a lot more, but we would be here for several more hours. So we capped it at five of which I will recap now. So the things that I didn't like too much with the latest Firestarter iteration is the pacing. We just have too much action too quickly. And then the areas that are expanded upon probably didn't need to be. So I was a little sad about that. I feel the pacing is a little bit off. This thing could have been two hours minimum, but it also, we could have had a whole series. I mean, I think all of us Stephen King fans want that. We always want a mini series. I would have been there for three hours, uh, happily. We, we really had time to, to space this thing out a little bit. So... Some choices were made. I felt it went a little too fast. Number two, setting and location. Number three, a barbecued cat. I wasn't fond of that. Number four, does Charlie have side effects from her powers? And number five, 
more fire. I just wanted more. So once more to reiterate my thoughts, I would not watch this one again, guys. It was, it was okay. I'm not going to give it a letter grade or anything. We're just going to, we're going to put all of that out there for all of you and we will do that. So I'm not going to give it a grade. Also, sometimes what happens is I will watch something and I'll feel a certain way about it. And then like 48 hours later, I might feel slightly different or I might be a little bit more tolerant to a concept that kind of initially rubbed me the wrong way. So there's that. I might change my mind. I might soften a little bit to some of the things I observed. Therefore, I'm not going to give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. But I will let you know that there were some things I absolutely loved, specifically what they did with John Rainbird and the ending. Loved the ending. Oh my gosh. Loved in all caps. That opened up some very mature, very deep, very spiritual, very cool concepts. And I just am filled with this imaginative place where John and her are together, they're safe, and he's teaching her how to protect herself, he's teaching her how to fight, he's teaching her how to hone her abilities, he is her caretaker, and yeah, maybe they're traveling the world together consistently on the run to avoid the shop, going all over the world as Charlie grows and And then what's she going to do if John Rainbird, you know, goes out for groceries and doesn't come back? Oh my gosh, guys, there's our story. That's my writing prompt for all of you guys. Uh, Let's do a 750 word of what you think happens when Charlie's 13 and John Rainbird does not come back from groceries. Oh my gosh, I love Firestarter so much, guys. I have such passion for the 1980 story. It's a lovely, heartfelt one about family and about a very, very powerful little girl who is a dark goddess. She is a dark, unkillable fire goddess. She contains the lore and mythology from hundreds of tribal and cultural stories. She is incredible. She is a source of endless inspiration for me. And I feel we we need to get some started here, folks, for sure. Charlie is so dang cool. Also, I think there's a 2002 show, Firestarter Rekindled. Was that any good? (laughs) So if you guys have any thoughts, please reach out to the show at underratedsk at gmail. Let me know what you thought about this latest iteration. I am eager to hear what you observed and if there was anything that I missed. Or if convinced, you guys might be able to get me into watching it a second time. I would be open to doing that if there's something really cool I might have missed. So please write into the show at underratedsk at gmail to say hi or to talk about any of the past episodes you've heard on the show. I answer them frequently. I will respond back within a few days. I promise, promise. But thank you guys so, so much for hanging out with me as I divulge all these fire thoughts about the latest fire starter coming up on the show we are headed back to the content i am opening up wizard and glass this week i'm gonna get started on it and then there should be some more constant reader interviews with really cool people coming up as well so thank you guys so much for hanging out with me i appreciate you all i love you all take care wherever you are in the world and we'll talk again soon bye-bye